Please open up your copy of God's Word, the Bible, the means by which God has indeed spoken to us this morning, to Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. We'll read here in a minute down to verse 23. Now, as you're turning there this morning, I'm going to try an experiment. <laughs> We're going to see how it turns out, okay? Um, I'm going to try an experiment this morning, and hopefully I don't hurt anybody in here. First of all, let me, let me play a sound and tell me if you can hear this. We'll just play it real quickly. Tell me if you can hear this. All right, y'all heard that? Okay. Did everybody hear that little beep? Okay. Now, I want you to play the next one. And uh, I want you to raise your hand if you can hear this one. All right, go ahead. All right, all right, stop. Okay. Everybody, was there anybody that couldn't hear that one? A couple of people. All right. Go to the next one down. Play that one. Are you playing it now? Oh, I can't hear it. So I was just, all right, all these hands popped up. I couldn't hear that one. All right, go to the next one down and play it. All right. I can't hear that one either, so that's pretty cool. It worked. The experiment worked. Did you know there are certain sounds that you cannot hear as you get older? The first sound, everyone in here should have been able to hear it. If you didn't hear the first one, you need to go to the doctor, all right? Everyone should have heard the first one. Even though the volume was low, everyone should have heard the first one. The second one was supposed to only be able to be heard by people 50 years and below, okay? So if you couldn't hear the second one and you raised your hand, and Heather, you raised your hand, I'm not sure what that's saying. <laughs> the third one you should only be able to hear if you were 30 years and younger, and the last one you should only be able to hear if you're 24 years old and below. At the age of 24, our ears begin to change. And we no longer can hear certain sounds we could hear when we were younger. And so the, the first time I ever heard about this, they called those mosquito tones. It was a term someone came up with. I don't know why. Mosquito tones. Here's what it is. Children began to put those sounds on their phones as ringtones so their parents wouldn't know that somebody was calling them, right? I just gave it, I just saw a couple of parents go, why did you just say that? You just put an idea in the brains of my children. But that's what they used it for. So that, you know, maybe they weren't allowed to get phone calls and, oh, wait, you know, they're getting a phone call. Parents don't know. They go off and, and answer the phone. So those are mosquito tones. But the the reason I played it this morning was simply to show us that some of us in here have ears to hear some tones that others of us in here don't have ears to hear. Some of us can hear things in, that others can't hear. Some of us in here are no longer able to physically hear some of the tones that we just played because of our age. Now today's text is all about hearing. The ability to hear. The willingness to hear. And the terrible position that some people are in who don't have ears to hear. But the type of hearing we're speaking about this morning is not the hearing of audible tones or, our, or of our ability to receive physical sound waves with our eardrums. No, the hearing we speak of this morning is spiritual hearing. And the instrument of receiving the spiritual sound waves that we're talking about this morning is not the ear, but the heart. Now, as we read today's text, you'll notice the word hear or hearing repeated over and over again in this text. Jesus does that for a reason. So let us stand this morning as we get ready to read this very familiar but very important passage of Scripture. 
Matthew chapter 13, we'll begin in verse 1, we'll conclude in verse 23. We stand at Harbin's as we read the word for the sermon because we honor the word as God's spoken word to us. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, their case, the prophecy in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and then tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, and immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns... This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word. Lord, we prayed as we sang for you to speak, and you have spoken. And so, God, we pray this morning, not for you to speak more clearly, but for us to have ears to hear more rightly. So, God, give us ears to hear. Grant me a mouth that will speak in accordance with what your word actually says. Keep me from error. We pray that you bless now this time of preaching the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. 
If you're here with us this morning and maybe this is one of the first times you've been to Harbin's or you haven't been very often, I want to remind you that we are walking through the earthly life of Jesus, his ministry, his earthly ministry, chronologically by harmonizing all four of the Gospels. And so we come today to a, to a very key passage. This is actually a key transition in the, the life and the ministry of Jesus. Now, first of all, to give you some context here, I'll remind you that, that there has been tension building. There's been tension regarding Jesus' ministry. It's been on the rise. Jesus has come. He has proclaimed that the kingdom of God is at hand. He has called on the people to repent and to turn to him, put their faith in him. He has shown his messianic authority through various miracles that have demonstrated his, his rule over nature, his rule over sickness, his rule even over demons and death. And these works and these words of Jesus have made him quite popular there's feverish crowds that have indeed been flocking to Jesus and, and many of them have been asking the question, is this the son of David? Is this the Messiah? But Jesus' words and deeds have also made him a target. The religious leaders have already begun to plot his death. But Jesus isn't swayed by opposition. He knows that he must be rejected and despised. And Jesus isn't enticed by crowds. For he knows the hearts of men, and he knows that these crowds will one day turn on him. Jesus isn't even led off course by his own family. As we saw last week, his own family come to get him because they're worried about him. And at least some members of his family think that he's lost his mind. So Jesus isn't going to be led off course by any of those things. So with that backdrop, we read in Matthew 13, verse 1, that that same day, so it's the same day that all the things that happened in chapter 12 happen, or at least the last parts of chapter 12. There's some things that Matthew inserts in chapter 12 that I think chronologically happen elsewhere. But at least the, the record of the, of the confrontation with the Pharisees who say that he was, he was casting out demons in the name of Satan, and his mother and brothers coming to him, and him then declaring that his disciples are his family. Immediately after that incident, we have here verse 1 of chapter 13, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. So Jesus leaves the place where he has been ministering, goes out to one of his favorite teaching spots. He goes to a place that can accommodate what verse 2 says. Great crowds gathered about him. So he goes out to the seashore because so he can accommodate this great crowd. We need to remember that most of the towns in Galilee were not very big. Matter of fact, in most of the towns in Galilee, the population of the town could fit in this room right here. So in order for it to be a great crowd meant that many people were coming from many towns, perhaps some traveling from far away, to come hear this man, Jesus. So we see that his ministry has reached sort of a fever pitch. And so there in the crowds, there's a strange mixture of excitement and anticipation along with skepticism and cynicism. Verse 2 continues. It says, he got into a boat and he sat down. Now I'll remind you that sitting is the posture that a teacher would take during Jesus' time when he was about to teach. So he sits down. That, that signals to the crowd that he is about to teach. We see here that it says the whole crowd stood on the beach. So the, so the scene is set. Everyone's waiting to hear what this man has to say. So this is a, this is a big moment. Because the, the, the tension and the excitement, it's all been building. So here is Jesus with this massive crowd. What's he going to say? So perhaps his disciples were wondering if now was the time. Now was the time that he was going to seize the moment. 
You know, we, we all learned in school as we, we studied different famous leaders, uh, maybe politicians or, or other famous leaders in history, how they knew how to seize the moment with the right kind of speech, right? JFK, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. That was a, he seized the moment with that comment. Martin Luther King, I have a dream. We can think of many others. Think of Churchill's speech, we will fight on the beaches. We will not surrender. We can think of Ronald Reagan as he stood before the Berlin Wall and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Great orators, great leaders knew how to seize the moment with the right kind of speech. And so here's Jesus. What's he going to do to, to seize the moment? Well, to many people's surprise and probably his disciples' surprise as well, he starts telling stories. Verse 3, and he told them many things in parables. So with the crowd hanging on every word that he's saying, Jesus tells them this story. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. End of speech. That's it. Big crowd. Little short story. What's going on? Well, Jesus, obviously, he's a better orator than any of those 20th century historical figures that I mentioned. Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. Now, I imagine the disciples saying, Jesus, is that it? That's your speech? Matter we know they have some questions because they begin to ask him some questions here in a second. But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. At this point in his ministry, he is shifting away or shifting toward his public speaking being done almost completely in parables from this point forward. He is shifting to more a parabolic ministry, if you will of preaching and teaching in parables. Matter of fact, Mark puts it this way in his parallel account. Mark 4, 33. He says, with many such parables, he spoke to them, spoke the word to them, and they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So even in this chapter 13, we're going to see seven parables about the kingdom. So Jesus begins now to speak more in parables. And so the question that I think that we're wondering is, is why? Why is Jesus beginning to speak more in parables? What's he doing? And, and that question was on the disciples' minds as well, because in verse 10, they actually ask it. It says this, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And so, the rest of this sermon today is going to be answering that question. Why does Jesus speak to them in parables? As a matter of fact, the parable itself that he uses as he begins, now this isn't the first time Jesus told a parable. It's just that from this point forward, he begins to speak in parables more often. So as this shift is happening, the actual parable he tells is connected to the reason why he has shifted now to parables. And so the first thing I want us to see this morning and that Jesus wants his disciples to see and us to see in regards to parables is simply this. God is sovereign over who receives and who rejects the kingdom message. God is sovereign over who receives and who rejects the kingdom message. 
Now, that may seem like an odd way to answer the question. The first answer to the question, why? Why are you speaking in parables? Jesus says, God is sovereign. Verse 11, and he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. I teach in parables because some are given the secrets of the kingdom and others are not. So that may leave us asking another question. What? What does that have to do with anything, Jesus? How does that answer the question? Well, we'll see as Jesus continues. But first we need to observe something here. And I want you to, if you've got the ESV translation, I want you to look at it. Because I think that the ESV messes up here. It obscures a connection that Jesus is making. There's a connection that Jesus is making. And, uh, and it's obscured here a bit by the ESV translating the Greek word hati. Okay, That's the word. It, it translates it as a recitatively, meaning that basically it leaves the word out and puts a quotation mark at the beginning of what Jesus says. But actually there's a word there that's, that's represented in the ESV by a quotation mark, but actually it's the word because. It can be translated because. Matter of fact, every other place in the New Testament, that word hati is translated because. Now in ancient Greek, sometimes that word hati was used to mark the beginning and the end of what someone was saying. It was used um, recitatively, like I just said a minute ago. But in this case, I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. I think he's using it the way it's used every other place in the New Testament. He's using it. He's saying because. In other words, he's rooting his answer to the question in what... He's rooting their, their question in what he's saying right now. Because. Here's why. Here's why I speak in parables. Because it has been given to you to know the secrets of the kingdom. In other words, parables... The use of parables is directly tied to God's sovereign will regarding who receives and who rejects the gospel. Now, in regard to God's sovereign will, there is no way to soften Jesus' words here. This is an uncompromising, unmistakable, unambiguous statement about the sovereign will and the sovereign grace of God. He is not praising the disciples for their ability to learn the secrets of the kingdom, nor is he expressing relief that they were lucky enough to figure it out. No, he unequivocally gives the credit of their knowing the secrets of the kingdom to the Father. To you it has been given to know. It has been given. Your translation may say granted. God is the sovereign king who grants what he wills to whom he wills. And he has granted the disciples the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Meaning that the kingdom was not coming in ways that the flesh could predict or perceive. That's exactly what Jesus says in Luke chapter, chapter 17 verse 20. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. It was mysterious. It was imperceptible to the eyes of flesh. But God in his sovereignty opened the blind eyes of some to see the secrets of the kingdom. Now, the only way for sinful men to understand the mysteries of the kingdom is if the king grants them understanding. Remember Matthew 16? We'll get to this passage eventually. This is the passage where, Jesus, where, where uh, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So he confesses the Messiahship of Jesus. Beyond that, he even confesses the divinity of Jesus. He is, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then we read Jesus respond to, to Peter's proclamation with these words in verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, 
For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter confesses Jesus as Lord, and Jesus turns around and says, Great job, Peter. Boy, you are the best of my disciples. You are so good. You are so perceptive. He says, you're blessed because God made you know what you know. God gave you grace to know what you know. Flesh and blood didn't do it. Your own mind, your own flesh, your own blood. You you didn't do any of it, Peter. God made that happen in you, and that's why you're blessed. And so we see the same thing happening here in this passage. My friends, this is the consistent, constant testimony of Scripture. That God is unconditionally, unquestionably, undoubtedly, unequivocally sovereign over all things, including the affairs of man. This does not mean that men are mindless robots. Instead, we are creatures created with real free agency to act according to our nature. You see, the man who is enslaved in sin, still under the rule of Satan, freely, willfully acts in accordance with his nature. And so, too, the man who has been freed from sin, who is now under the rule of Christ, freely, willfully acts in accordance with his new nature. So there is no man, this type of person doesn't exist, there is no man who hates God, yet is dragged into the kingdom against his will. Likewise, there is no man who loves God, yet is kicked out of the kingdom against his will. So man acts with real and free moral responsibility, yet God is sovereign even over men's free actions. The main reason we can't understand this can be summed up by God's words spoken through the psalmist, I think it's Asaph, in Psalm 50. Here's the reason. Here's the reason we don't understand the sovereignty of God or we don't like the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Psalm 50, verse 21. This is God speaking. You thought that I was one like yourself. You thought that I was one like yourself. You see, we think God is like us. And since we can't exercise sovereignty over someone without manipulating or or coercing them against their will, we attribute the same actions to God. But God is transcendent. He can be sovereign over men's wills without violating them. This is what makes him God. The Bible writers never feel that they have to reconcile God's absolute sovereignty with man's moral responsibility. It's spoken of side by side all throughout the scripture and never, well, I'll give you one exception. Only one time is there ever any attempt to sort of reconcile that. And that attempt to reconcile ends up creating more questions than it does give answers. And that's the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 when the question of God's sovereignty and man's freedom comes up. Paul says this in Romans 9 verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? There you have it. In two verses, Paul, that's how he reconciles God's sovereignty with man's freedom. Right there. Two verses. Pretty simple. And yet we have theologians write books this thick every year trying to figure this out. Why? Because we want God to be made in our image. We want a God who's like us. We want a God we can explain. Our struggle with the doctrine of God's sovereignty is not an interpretation or a hermeneutical problem. It's a belief problem. 
It's an idolatry problem. We like to think of God like one, one like ourselves. So we long and we try to shape God in our image, and then we fall into unbelief. So Jesus, in his statement here, he assaults our concept of the autonomy and free will of man. And then he goes on to assault our concept of fairness and equality in verse 12. For to the one who has, more will be given. It's referring to the secrets of the kingdom. To the one who has the secrets of the kingdom, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So we again see that God is the sovereign giver and taker. We live in a culture that has a warped concepts of fairness and equality, don't we? I mean, it's just all over the place. I mean, this week, in, in, in Dr. Moeller's briefing, I don't know if any of y'all listened to the briefing, he spoke of a, of a new study that a couple of universities did. Um, and this is kind of appropriate on Mother's Day. A couple of universities did this study, and it was actually had the, the, the findings of the study were shared on, on ABC News, but it was Australian Broadcasting Network, not our local, not our ABC. But anyway... Here was the deal. The study determined, and this was the language the study used, that it was unjust and unfair that children who grow up in homes with two parents, male and female, have an advantage over those who don't. It was unjust and unfair. What? <laughs> that's, that's where we are today. As a matter of fact, there were a few different proposals put forth by the study Actually, one of them they didn't actually support, but this was one of the proposals that they thought might happen down the road if, to try to fix this inequality, to fix this unjust. These, these poor kids that don't grow up with both mom and dad compared to the kids that do grow up with mom and dad, it's so unjust, we've got to fix it. And one of the solutions was that children need to be turned over to the government when they're born so that all children can be raised in equality and fairness. Now, you think that sounds crazy and sci-fi, but there are universities promoting that junk today. That's the world we live in. That's the warped concept of fairness that we, we live amongst today. It's no surprise that when God chooses to act sovereignly, to give and take as he sees fit, that we think it's unfair. In reality, it's not unfair. It's just the way the universe works. If you want fair, if you want fair, you, you don't want to know what fair is. For God to allow every single human being to perish in hell would be a very fair thing. Because all of us are rebels against his will. Those who have been given the secrets of the kingdom, they grow in their understanding of the kingdom and they're given more insight. It's, it's called sanctification. Okay, we, should, we should grow in our depth of our understanding of the gospel, of the kingdom. Hebrews 6.1 says, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So, so Paul, or the, the apostle, whoever wrote Hebrews, is, is, is challenging the believers to grow. You have to keep growing, keep learning about the kingdom. And those who hear the word with receptive hearts, they grow in their knowledge of God. But those who refuse to hear, those who reject the secrets of the kingdom, what they have will even be taken away, according to Jesus. So we read on in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 6, now in verse 4. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of, this, of the age to come, and then have 
fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And it's almost as if the author of Hebrews was referring back, back to this very parable. Verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So God sovereignly reveals, gives the secrets of the kingdom to some and gives them more and more as they receive it with faith. But likewise, in his sovereignty, he conceals He does not give the secrets of the kingdom to others. And what they have heard makes them harder and harder and harder. And they persist in their rebellion. But what does that have to do with parables? Well, let me go on to the next thing that Jesus points out. And we'll just sort of sum up what parables do. Here it is. Parables, therefore, are a means to accomplish God's sovereign end. So if that's God's sovereign design, parables are one of his means... To accomplish that end. Verse 13. This is exactly what Jesus says. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see. And hearing they do not hear. Nor do they understand. Now look there at that verse. Verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because. Now there are some who take that word because. And make this text mean. The the opposite of what it actually means. Last summer on sabbatical, I heard a preacher say that that Jesus is speaking in parables because the people were so hard of hearing that he had to treat them like stories and give them little, little, treat them like children and give them little stories to make it easier for them to grasp the concepts of the kingdom. Let me just say that is not what Jesus is saying here. That is not how the word because is to be understood. I'll give you two reasons. Number one, what we just read in verses 11 and 12. God's sovereignty over who receives and who rejects, who hears and who doesn't, is tied to the reason that Jesus uses parables. And then number two, Mark's parallel passage. Remember, we are harmonizing the Gospels here. Mark's parallel passage, this is what Mark says in Mark 4.12. To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that, so that, verse 12, so that they may indeed see but not perceive And may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So instead of because, which is that word hati that I mentioned earlier, in Mark's gospel he uses the word hina, okay, which which means so that. And hina is unambiguous. It is clearly telling us that the parables are not given to overcome their blindness and deafness, but that the parables are actually given to cause it. And that's 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 shocking to us. Part of the reason Jesus gave the parables was to to actually cause deafness and blindness among those who were hearing them. So we must read Matthew's word because in that light. Jesus speaks in parables because or so that some of the people see yet not perceive and hear yet not understand. The parables then are instruments, the means of God dumbfounding some of those who were listening. Matter of fact, Jesus makes it clear that that's what he was meaning by, by the prophecy that he quotes here from Isaiah chapter 6. Now, we read this earlier. Isaiah chapter 6. And this is where Isaiah is given the vision. And he, he says, here I am, Lord, send me. And, and, and God sends him. And, and what we have here is what Jesus says. Indeed, their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. It says, 
You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. This passage is from Isaiah 6, like I've already said. Now, a lot of people love to quote Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8, right? Where do you usually hear Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8? What type of services? What? Missions, right? A missionary, missionary commissioning, right? Heather and I grew up as missionary kids, so we've been to commissioning services. I've been to several commissioning services, and oftentimes this passage is mentioned. It's a great passage for commissioning services. I encourage people to use this passage when they're talking about missions and missionaries and sending missionaries. But especially that part, here am I, send send I. You know, there's this great sort of peak there in in the text. Here am I. And then you have everyone in the audience feeling guilty that they're not saying the same thing. And everyone's going, yeah, here am I. What we fail to do often is then read the rest of the text. <laughs> and that is that God was sending Isaiah into a failed ministry, failed in the human sense, because no one was going to listen. Matter of fact, he wanted them to go. He wanted Isaiah to take the message so that as the people rejected it, he could then bring judgment upon them. That's what Isaiah 6 is teaching us. Matter of fact, that judgment leads us to put our hope at the very end of that Isaiah passage. You saw the holy seed. There would be one who would come who would be obedient. Of course, that one is Jesus. My point simply being that Jesus is using Isaiah 6 to to explain why he's speaking in parables. Therefore, the reason he is speaking in parables is to do the same thing Isaiah was doing. The message was going to go out. It was going to save some, but others were going to be hardened by it. And fall into judgment. Therefore, parables have two functions in Jesus' ministry. Here we go. Number one, Jesus uses parables as instruments of grace to clarify and reveal the kingdom to those who have ears to hear. To clarify and reveal the kingdom to those who have ears to hear. So yes, parables are great stories that give us great insight into the kingdom. They are wonderful to use with children. But secondly, Jesus uses parables as instruments of judgment to obscure and conceal the kingdom from those who do not have ears to hear. So there's a twofold purpose of parables in in Jesus' use of parables. Just as in Isaiah's day, there will always be a blessed remnant of people who hear the word and believe. Matthew 13, 16, the next verse here as we go through this passage. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Now what is a blessing? A blessing isn't something you earn. You are given a blessing. You are given that gift. So the disciples didn't earn the right to hear the gospel. A blessing isn't something that comes from within you. It comes from outside of you. Blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to hear what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The disciples were in the long line of the prophets the long line of the remnant of God's people who had true faith, the true people of God, they stood in an even better place for in the progression of God's redemptive revelation, the secrets were even more clear now and would become even clearer upon the arrival of the Holy Spirit. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, this is the, the prophets of old, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that 
have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So, so overall, what are we to do with all this? God is sovereign over those who receive and reject the kingdom message. And his parables are tools, they're means of accomplishing his sovereign end. Yet, Jesus is always calling on men to repent, calling on men to respond. He never excuses men of their moral responsibility. We bear the moral responsibility to be good hearers. That's what he says in Luke chapter 8, verse 18. Take care then how you hear. Take care then how you hear. And so now, Jesus doesn't just leave us in a fatalistic funk. He takes us to application. He challenges us. He calls us to do something now. Take care how you hear. And so that's why he explains now the parable. And so as we look at the parable, and I'm going to go quickly through these last few points. Jesus explains the parable so we can put ourselves through an ear examination. Kind of like I did this morning. We're going to put ourselves through an ear examination. He who has ears to hear, verse 9 says, let him hear. And the instrument of spiritual hearing, as I said earlier, is not the ear but the heart. And the heart is represented in the parable by different soils. Really, this parable is mislabeled in the Bible, in our Bibles. you got to remember the labels that says the parable of the sower, that's not inspired. Those, those are later things put in to help us divide the Bible up into to digestible parts, just as the verse numbers are as well. So really, the, I think this should be entitled the parable of the soils, because that's really what it's about. So do you hear, number one, do you hear with a hard heart? Verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, Luke says it's the word of God, which is the gospel, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. We all know, we all can relate to these. This is what's beautiful about parables. Jesus gives us things we can relate to. Okay, so, so how many of you guys have a dog in your backyard? We have an inside-outside dog, but used to we had dogs in our backyard, and they would create paths. You these little trails, and so you'd go out and try to get the grass growing again. It wouldn't grow in those spots because the, the dogs kept the path hard, and it, it couldn't receive the seed, and let, it needed to be tilled up. It needed to be, to be transformed. And so here, Jesus speaks of having a, a hard heart. This is the heart that refuses to hear. These are the type, this is the type of hearts that, Jesus, that, that Stephen was speaking to in, in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, when he when he, near the end of his sermon, isn't this a great way to end your sermon? He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in the heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. That's a way to end a sermon, all right. So there's Stephen ending his sermon by saying, all of you that are hearing me simply have hard hearts. This is the heart, like the hard path where the truth cannot penetrate. The seed never takes root. The hearer is apathetic. The hearer is unconcerned. Hard hearts are not only those unbelievers outside the church. There are many who say they are in the church, but are in the church, sitting in the pews of our churches, sitting under the preached word of God and thinking about lunch. Completely unconcerned. Completely apathetic. Would this preacher just get done? I can't believe he has four more points and it's 12 o'clock. They could care less what God has to say. They may even outwardly say that God's word is true while inwardly refusing to believe it and submit to it. They show no fruit, for they do not understand. They never seriously consider the claims of Christ. They never accept God's word by faith. 
They claim to be Christians, but their fruitless, barren spirituality speaks otherwise. That's one heart. Now, we may think it's easy to, to determine the spiritual condition of that heart, but the next two aren't so easy. The next one is the shallow heart. Do you have a shallow heart? Verse 20, as for the one sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This is the heart that reacts with emotion, but has no depth of faith. When things are good, they believe. But when things are tough, belief withers away. This is the blight of much of American Christianity. It's repentance-less Christianity built on emotions and personal experiences. Tim Keller said this type of Christianity is filled with sufferers who want solutions instead of sinners who beg for a Savior. That the churches are filled with this type of heart. It's pragmatic, it's consumeristic, and it comes to Jesus for the best life now or to find some hidden purpose for life. But when that purpose is revealed to be persecution or hardship, he or she jumps ship. This is the shallow Christianity. It's the kiddie pool of faith. Faith that is easily withered by the scorching winds of a secular culture and the harsh rays of persecution. It's hard to detect the shallow heart, but hard times will do the work for us. We are certainly coming into times in our nation when persecution is arising on account of the word. But the next soil is also hard to detect. It's a divided heart. A divided heart. As for the one that was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is another prevalent soil in the American church. This heart tries to find a way to love God and love mammon. This heart is fruitless because it would care less about fruit. It wants stuff. It could care less about fruit. This heart worries about stuff. This heart covets stuff. This heart will sell God out for stuff. More subtly, this heart must control things in its life. This heart has to have everything planned out. This heart finds security outside of Christ. This is the rich young ruler. This is the wedding guest who'd rather test out his oxen than come to the feast. This is American Christianity in a nutshell. This is lukewarm, lukewarm hearts fit for being only spit out of the mouth of Jesus. And just as weeds slowly choke out beautiful flowers in your garden, so too this is a slow spiritual death. It's a creep toward materialism, toward anxiety over material things. The heart refuses to hear what Jesus says. The heart refuses to believe. The heart refuses to seek first the kingdom and not worry about tomorrow. This heart, too, is hard to detect. But when the stuff vanishes or the security is threatened, this heart reveals itself. Finally, there is the receptive heart. Do you have a receptive heart? And this is the final heart. As for what is sown in good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands that he indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. We were made to produce fruit. We are shown to be disciples by our fruit, the works that come out of our life. 
John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now one last thing to notice here as Jesus talks about the yields. Notice that the fruit is supernatural. In one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another thirty. The normal yield in ancient agriculture was fivefold. Fivefold was the normal yield. A great, amazing return was tenfold. So, so when Jesus says here 30 and 60 and 100, he's talking about type of crop that's supernatural. That's the fruit that's produced in a true believer. Things that only can be explained by God's work. And I'm pleased to say I've seen that in this church. I've seen people grow in this church and seen God produce things out of people in this church. And I don't sit around and go, wow, that person's great. I say, wow, God, you are great. Because you produced fruit that's simply amazing. And it happens all the time. Now, I, I believe, let me bring this to a conclusion for us this morning. I believe there are two levels of application here in regards to the soils. First of all, there's a, there's a broad sense that we need to look at the soils. So a lot of people ask the question, well, which one of these soils are true Christians? Which ones aren't, right? Are the first two Christians and the last two aren't? I mean, the first two, last two are, the first two aren't. People try to figure it out. I think we're, we don't need to worry about that. I think we simply, in a broad sense, it's, it's pretty clear. The first three don't produce any fruit. Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit. So to me, in a broad sense, the pattern of a person's life who is like any one of the first three is evidence that they're not a believer. That's the broad application of this text. But I think there's also a more narrow view. And that is simply this. We all, because we still reside in sinful bodies, fall have areas in our hearts where these different soils still reside. We all still struggle in different ways in our hearts. Now, if we show a consistent pattern of acting that way, that makes me worried about the condition of a person's heart. But the fact of the matter is we all still struggle in different ways as we grow in the word for sanctification. So we need to receive the word for salvation. We need to grow in the word for sanctification. So I want that to be our final application today. Let us take heed how we hear the word. So just as a, this is a way to sort of put some feet on what I'm saying. I spoke a hard word earlier today about the sovereignty of God. And I believe that word is consistent with the, with the very clear revealed word of God from Genesis all the way to Revelation about the sovereignty, absolute sovereignty of God. Now we can hear that this morning in, in different ways. There are some who will fold their arms and say, I will not believe that. I will not embrace that. That's not the God I worship. Instead, they want to make a God in their own image. I'm not saying that everyone that reacts that way to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is not a believer. What I'm talking about are different pockets in our hearts. Some may respond with joy. They just, they're overcome with emotion when they sing about the sovereignty of God. So they sing that song earlier, my Lord, I did not choose you. And, and they're, they're weeping as they think about God's sovereign choosing of them. And then they leave and begin to worry about their job tomorrow. They don't apply what they are so moved by in real life. And therefore they don't really produce fruit that should come from truly believing in the sovereignty of God. And there are others that have soils where you believe in the sovereignty of God. And you, 
intellectually you embrace it, but you live in the world with your money, with your possessions, and everything else like you are the king of your own universe. And there are some that receive the word gladly and it produces supernatural fruit in the hearts of people. So I think there's a broad application and there's a narrow application for the text. Finally, let me just say a word to any in here this morning who are not Christians. You've never professed Jesus as Lord. Perhaps you see in your own life a pattern of number one, number two, or number three. You've never actually been down on that fourth level. You've never been the type of soil that receives the word with gladness. You come here because it's a thing to do. You come here because your wife wants you to. You come here because it's ritual. You come here for whatever else. And you don't receive the word. You never have received the word. You have a hard heart. Let me say to you this morning, I beg you to turn to Jesus. I hope that you've been asking God this morning as we've been, as I've been preaching, to give you a hearing heart. And I can say with absolute confidence on the words of Jesus that whoever comes to Jesus will not be cast out. So come, quit your rebellion and come. Put your faith in Christ for he died on the cross to forgive rebels like you and like me. The great mystery of the kingdom is this. Jesus, the sinless, perfect King of kings, the Son of the living God, the second person of the Godhead, came as a human man and died a death taking the wrath of God upon himself for his people. And then he he died not only to take our wrath, but to give us his righteousness so that we could stand before God unblemished. And he gave us his spirit as a guarantee, the spirit who is at work in all believers here this morning, softening our hearts daily to his word. So I ask you to come. Turn to the one who has the words of life. I beg you to come. But I pray to God to do the work. For only he can give you ears to hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that is my prayer this morning. That you give all of us in here ears to hear. Whatever your Holy Spirit needs to do in the hearts of believers in here this morning. Believers that have hard pockets in their hearts. Maybe regarding different things that have even been preached at Harbin's. Father, I beg you to soften hearts, mine included. And for the unbelievers here this morning, Father, I beg them to turn to you, but I know the power resides in you. So I ask you, Father, to break open some hard hearts this morning and turn them into hearts of flesh, turn them into obedient hearts. They must be born again. They must be born again. So God, I ask you to do that work. We praise you and we thank you. And as we sing this final song, Father, I pray that you be honored and glorified. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.